So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. We got a classic episode today. We do. We're talking about William Wyler. Two titles from him. We're talking about the Children's Hour, as well as How to Steal a Million. Mm-hmm. Should be fun. Both are Audrey Hepburn titles. I'm trying to do a little bit of homework, maybe get to at least half her filmography this year. So this is putting me right on track. We're in early March, and I think I will have seen six from her now this year. So that's that's pretty decent pace. Hepburn deep dive. Mm-hmm. How's uh, it going so far? I've not been let down. I'm very taken by her performing style. It's not something that I see very often now. She'll really lean on going wide-eyed and becoming exasperated, but with such conviction that you can't really not believe her. It, when when it seems unreal, you want to blame the camera rather than her because mm. of her level of commitment. It's a it's a very she interesting performative style. Yeah, mm. um, it, I'm I'm quite taken so far. I um, I'm sad that I put it off this long, but happy to be uh, be this far in already. Good stuff. But we'll do first impressions first. What are we doing first impressions on? Speaking of Audrey Hepburn, let's watch Mortal Kombat. Make of that transition what you will. <laughs> Different cultures all over the world reference a great tournament of champions. That dragon marking. I think it's an invitation to fight for something known. Mortal Kombat. All right, that was the trailer for the upcoming Mortal Kombat. I missed who directed this. I don't think it matters. <laughs> what do you make of this? Uh, I'm very disappointed. It seems very, very unrealistic. I can't imagine mm -hmm. a world in which, you know, the Mortal Kombat fight comes to the Earth realm and we don't nominate Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker to represent mm. us in that fight. Um, just seems kind of preposterous to me. I don't know about it's fair. you. It's fair. Um, I grew up on Mortal Kombat. Um, you know, it was one of my, I think it was literally my third SNES game that I got. And I got like five, probably, when I got the system. I got like Aladdin, um, like some sort of a circus bat game that i'm forgetting that was like a blast i'm gonna follow up on that one mortal kombat 1 mortal kombat 2 and then that super mario all-stars that had like all the super mario games in it it was pretty cool first batch so like mortal kombat is you know a special place in my heart i have uh some bookends up there um that i've got the scorpion bookend up there so that on one end it's scorpion throwing the uh the thing and on the other end it's I think Sub-Zero getting pierced by it. So I, I definitely have warm place in my heart for Mortal Kombat. It doesn't look visually that interesting, but it does remind me of a fun 
kind of a tentpole film experience where if I can see this with friends and drink, then I will have a fun time because that's the purpose. It's like a social fun event type of a film, not something that I'm interested in the cinematography, acting, style, etc. of. If it does anything well, what I'd like it to do well is good 3D special effects. And I, I would like to see the film in 3D because in 2D in that trailer, those effects did not look good. I'd be interested to see if they look better in 3D. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of those movies for me that like when Warner Brothers, you know, made the announcement that all these movies, all these 2021 movies were going to be going day and date, both the theaters and HBO Max. And they put out the list of movies and stuff like Tom and Jerry and Mortal Kombat on there. I'm thinking to myself, who cares? Like, I'm just not likely to watch the movie anyways. anyways. Um, but that said, the way you describe it, where if you're watching it with friends and you're talking, that is probably the right way to do it. Um, that I wouldn't complain about. But um, I'd be curious to know the runtime. I didn't catch that. That might influence my decision about turning this on sometime just to it's a drinking time. game every time someone dies you drink exactly right um and yeah. you all have to chant fatality as a group exactly right uh, i actually don't think i played this uh as a kid but i'm very familiar with it um yeah that's mortal kombat strong words <laughs> from michael on mortal kombat <laughs> on to the science fiction film Voyagers. This is our best chance to find a habitable planet. We breed and raise our own crew. Three. Train them in isolation to prepare them for life in space. Two. The voyage will take 86 years. I'm scared. Of what? There's nothing to be scared of. Alright, Michael, that was the trailer for Voyagers. I unfortunately think we're two for two on this one. What do you think? <laughs> it's probably fair. Uh, I was not familiar with this title until today when you suggested it for first impressions. Um, it's honestly not what I was expecting, which has... Uh, it, it is... Uh, going for more sex appeal than I was expecting from the plot description, which has already kind of escaped me, to be honest. But we're in the we're in sci-fi territory um, with, uh, I, there's, some, there's some dubstep. It's a little chaotic. I'm actually kind of intrigued by just the kind of uh, nonsense of the trailer in a way. It seems kind of, uh, kind of messy in a way that's actually intriguing to me. Um, but, uh, probably not great. What about you? It's like if someone watched The Island and then read The Brave New World and then thought they could make a movie, but they didn't know they couldn't, and then had good stars. It has some, some talent. I do like who we got here, Colin Farrell, Lily Rose Depp. I'm all on board with Colin Farrell, actually. I would be too if it wasn't that stupid look at the camera monologue bullshit that he was doing about just, you know, just basic lines of dialogue that are supposed to have inherent profundity that is not um, earned within the trailer. And then just, you know, 
close-ups of semen in a petri dish and then a bunch of people having an orgy on a bed like it's just no yeah kind of provocation that's a little just eye-rolling perhaps that's very courteous yeah let's go with that fair enough on to how to steal a million following every suspenseful move of the world's most delightful crime network. We mean the Black Lace Network that glorifies the gorgeous legs of adorable, audacious Audrey Hepburn as she hooks up with the world's smoothest stealer of hearts, Peter O'Toole. You interested in a big-time caper? A what? A heist. A heist? Oh, you mean a burglary. What's the score, baby? All right, Michael, this is a film by William Wyler, and it stars Peter O'Toole and Audrey Hepburn, and I'm forgetting the name of of Audrey's father, but I absolutely adore him. Um, I believe he was like a a silent film actor briefly and um, had kind of a a memorable career, but was never really in a, a big successful film. Unfortunately, because I think that that man should be remembered by everyone. Yeah, that actor is Hugh Griffith. The character's mm-hmm. name is Charles Bonet. Looks like his uh, most credited or most highly credited film is Ben-Hur, also mm-hmm. Weiler, um, the father of Hepburn's character. Yeah. Yes. Um, he plays a character who recreates famous pieces of art and then sells them for money. He's basically a very successful fraudster, and Audrey's in on it, which makes her moral righteousness in the film, I think, quite funny in an like in endearing yet indignant way. Um, very, very pleasant. And then Peter O'Toole continues to be this good-looking damsel in distress type of a a male figure who I just can't quite put my finger on, but I absolutely love. I totally get if people don't like him. I get if you don't quite enjoy his performance here, but I think this is probably my fourth movie from him in the last three months. And I am just very much digging what O'Toole is selling. Um, It's just this preposterous, like, like almost Marilyn Monroe type of a figure where he's like, I can't help that I'm a sex figure. Just let me act. (laughs) Yeah. He definitely has some obvious sex appeal. He is a handsome man and he is playing a very slick, urbane, sophisticated guy here. And I like, I do like, I actually like him quite a bit. I like that. It doesn't, it doesn't feel smug to me. It actually, there's actually kind of a modesty to how he, plays this very uh, high society man that I actually find quite appealing. So I, I, I'm actually on board with uh, uh, him as well, but less so, I think, on the movie overall, which it maybe sounds like you enjoyed more. I mean, how could you not be thrilled into uh, pleasantness as an emotion watching this film in which... Um, um, a man checks behind the the staircase to make sure there's no intruder and he digs into the fire bucket and he he pulls out a a fifth of some sort of a hard alcohol he uncorks it and he sticks the cork into one ear he plugs his other ear with his finger and he takes a, a long 
uh, drac of, of the the liquid. I mean, this movie is charming and comedic, and I like it. It's that simple. It's charming and comedic, and I like it. I don't know that I would even disagree with you like that hard about it. I kind of think on a different day I might have been uh, more enthused about it, but this time around I have to say I found it kind of dull. I don't think it's as visually interesting as the other Wilder film we'll talk about after this. Um, but yeah, it kind of feels like imitation Hitchcock to me. Um, Where would you get Hitchcock from? Are you talking about when she's scared and she covers her eyes? With a book or pamphlet that says Alfred Hitchcock on it? Nice little tip of the hat, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I've read about Weiler is that he is known for drawing things out at length more so than other directors might. And to me, it doesn't exactly work here, where I think this movie just lacks some momentum for me, um, where it should have some. I think this hinges mostly on... To me, it hinges largely on the extent to which you enjoy, you know, watching Hepburn and O'Toole come together. This is, Mm. to me, more romance than heist. I like them independently. I just don't really find myself that compelled by the romance factor here, by by the chemistry. I think they are both good actors, but I'm just not invested in finding this, finding these people coming together. I don't know how you felt about that. Yeah, that's one of the... So... With, with O'Toole, I don't think I've ever actually believed that he was ever party to anyone else in any of his films. He's got this really weird thing where he's kind of the fish out of water, no matter what his role is. No matter who's on the opposite side, it could be someone as talented as Audrey Hepburn. It could be someone as short and young as Woody Allen. It doesn't matter. He just doesn't seem to fit within the confines But there's something about him that is just so charming and pleasant that I'm charmed and I'm having a good time within the film, even if it's not working on some of those more basic levels that we really do normally expect a film to work in. I I think that there's particular moments where, you know, he's trying to sell that he can't recognize Audrey Hepburn when she arranges a meeting with him in a restaurant and he looks back at her like three times and it just absolutely does not work. Like, you could think of Cary Grant or any other great actor at this point in time who would have just absolutely sold that scene. And for some reason, O'Toole just absolutely flubs it. But it's, I'm, me as a as a human person watching the film, I'm so charmed by both of them kind of ending up being these fish out of water that don't even make sense together. That there's something about that in context of the film that personally really works for me. Um, but I, I could see not appreciating it because in a conventional way, he very much does not deliver what the convention would have him deliver. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. I mean, yeah, there, I don't think there is any, you know, real affecting kind of romantic crescendo here that, that, that makes me swoon. It's definitely... Uh, oh, Audrey Hepburn, I in that closet as they're leaving. Enjoyed that? N- nothing quite so sensual <laughs> as her eyeballing the closet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're in that closet a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, the the 
the gist of the heist is they hide in the closet while they routinely set off an alarm. And she's quiet commotion. the whole time, and that might be O'Toole's best scene. Within the closet? I think so. Because it's just kind of this this um, mime type of a work that he's doing. It's, it's all very much mm. visual gag. Um, and then, you know, whoever edited the film, I, I don't know their name, really just cut back in at those crucial times where he's really doing his face up and worry um, on the reverse kind of jump cut, mm-hmm. grabbing the key with, with the magnet. Um, I, I think it's, yeah, his, his single one man show there, I think is quite fun. Yeah, it might be. And this is the case with some just kind of studio era f- films. There's, there is something kind of sexless about it that I feel mm-hmm. that you kind of feel is missing, especially in that cramped space. Like, I actually feel like there's not enough sexual tension in those moments. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just doesn't bother me. Like, you just kind of accept that that's the, the nature of the beast with kind of that, you know, Hayes Cordera stuff. But other times the innuendo is there. The hints are there. I'm not sure I really see those hints there. And they feel kind of, um, kind of sexless in their attraction to each other that that leaves me a little uh um left wanting more yeah there's no smoky there there's no Mm -hmm. sultry there there's the implicit expectation that we have as a viewer but there's no real magnetism being shared between them of being enamored Mm -hmm. um and it's more just me and joy at the magnet gag and then More using, comic. Yeah. using the the snake to get the key into the hole and then taking the pliers and turning it from the inside. It's just, uh, once again, charming. There's, for me, charm can go a lot way, a long way in certain films. And this is one of those films where it's like, um, point out a flaw, I'll agree. But I will argue that I was so charmed that I do not care as much as I would normally care in a different film. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I do think had this had the the rhythm been accelerated a bit, I might have connected this con- connected with it a bit more. I do think that's maybe part of the issue for me. It's a long movie; it's full two hours. It, it did feel long mm-hmm. um, to me. And it takes uh, hour twenty before the heist is proper. Yeah, yeah, and and even as they're kind of planning or not really planning the heist, he's really. Um, Waffling letting, on it. Yeah, and letting her in on how exactly he's going to go about it. It's really not about, like, setting up what could go wrong, why this is dangerous. It's more just about the opportunity for them to be together and for them to start mm-hmm. um, getting familiar with each other and falling in love. Um, but it's just a matter of if you feel the chemistry in those scenes. I, I am beginning to get a little bit tired in these classic films of the double agent. I don't know how many classic films you and I have watched in the last six months in which our main male character who is proposing to be a con man of some sort is actually a double or triple agent and working for some sort of government office. It's a very continuous trope at this point in time. I would roughly place it as like a trope between 48 and 78 maybe. Just like this giant window of 30 years in which, like, most of the men who do anything bad are actually really good guys. And they always get the woman who was not overtly 
a criminal to begin with to marry them. The end. This is, you know, paid for by the U.S. Army and FBI and CIA. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't particularly care for the reveal at the end when Peter O'Toole is finally admitting to Hepburn's character that he is not a burglar. He is actually the uh, one who identifies forgeries. Um, it, it's weird to me how that shot is shot in a way as if it's revealing to us mm-hmm. who he is, but we already know that um, from earlier on. I think there's some kind of confusion between the focus on it, the focus being on her reaction to it, which is obviously a surprise, but it also feeling like he's just kind of listing his credentials for a second that falls, falls a little flat for me. So, building back on, on something you were talking about earlier, it's with these films, I always don't know because we're not spending 20 hours a week doing research on it. I do not know the history of this film. And I don't know what was forced to be studio reshoots and what they couldn't reshoot. So, I don't know if that actually was the original reveal. And if the previous reveal was a forced reshoot that they had to edit into the, the film to you know make some sort of a point because that tested better or something um that's the tricky thing with this this time period is the studios had so much control the director could only direct in the visual style really that he wanted to present the film um at the end of the day for most directors they did not have final cut so that's one of the the things that i wonder particularly with with this era not just this film yeah um yeah, it, it, it certainly, perhaps there is a better uh, take out there. Yeah, or <laughs> uh, an original edit that was, you know, 30 minutes shorter that really had propulsiveness and sold the uh, the reveal at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll say that I do kind of like the just the, the humor in the premise itself, which the title suggests it is a heist of something valuable and it's in fact quite the opposite it is stealing something because it is not worth a million dollars i do think there is it the premise itself is funny um more the speed of the execution that i found less exciting so did did you get confused when the insurance agent came by and had her dad sign the form because I got confused at that point, and I didn't know if the insurance would still count or not, even though it hadn't been appraised because they'd forgotten to get it appraised, and it was already insured. Mm. So I didn't know if they were actually stealing it to get a million or not. Oh, I see what you're saying. There's, It's kind of an order of operations question uh-huh. there. Where it's like, because the museum didn't get it inspected, that's on them. The insurance mm-hmm. policy is still in effect and whether or not the insurance company pays for the million dollars or the museum does doesn't matter because it's insured for this and they came to an agreement and it's not that man's responsibility <laughs> to get it inspected per se. Fair. That I actually did not think about it. I, I did not think about those two options. I did I'll some say. gymnastics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, how does it stack up against the other Hepburn performances that you've seen? Excluding Children's Hour, because we'll hold off on that one. No spoilers yet. Children's Hour is a very interesting performance, um, (laughs) comparatively in her career, Mm -hmm. so I appreciate that caveat. Um, Comedically, it's it's maybe her least elegant, um, and 
really low effort charm. You know, it gets a little bit meta where he overtly says, you know, the the Givenchy could could do for a day off, which mm-hmm. Audrey famously always wears Givenchy because of her her contract deal with them. Um, it, it's it's an interesting performance because I, if I remember correctly, this is at a at a particular time in her life where I think she just had her son. It's like one of her first or or second movies back since then, and her her marriage is fully crumbling at this point, and he's like abusive and cheating, and so like in these extracurricular ways, it's interesting. But as a as a performer herself, you know she's not doing Roman Holiday here. This isn't, um, you know, near the top tier of, of a type of comedic, enjoyable Audrey Hepburn performance that I would recommend. But if you already like Audrey, I think that this is a fun performance, especially when she's on her own, scrubbing the floor or, you know, getting angry at her papa. Um, there, there's something charming here but i i do think o'toole kind of outshines that charm that audrey has yeah i would think uh those out there who truly love it love it in part for just the the glamour and elegance of her character and his you know it's it's the it's the clothes it's the setting in I france think um, clothes are kind of boring in this one comparatively to other films that that certainly could be. Um, to me, it's funny. You know, you get these studio movies like like Roman Holiday. I actually have not seen Roman Holiday, but like Roman Holiday, in that it's it's Americans in some other exotic locale. In this mm-hmm. case, France. It does not feel like a French movie. It feels no. like a very American movie. No, coming off of um, <laughs> Elevator to the Gallows, it does not feel like a French movie at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, you know it's like quite literally escapism in a way that we are escaping to France for romance and comedy. Um, and it just, just feels a little bit like empty calories for me in this case, but, um, that's okay. There are certainly worse things out there. And I I think that as much as it maybe wasn't, um, gorgeously directed, I think that it was very competently directed. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he never, really leaves anyone standing dry. Um, it seems like there's always something passively interesting in the shot, whether it's a it's a foreshadow where you keep wondering what this screen is in front of whatever the hell this is next to the velvet rope in the museum, and then mm. it finally turns into this crucial area that's the chimney. It's the chimney screen, but we don't know that. And Audrey has to hide there. Right? And it actually is played for comedic effect. I, I think that there's, you know, interesting choices. It's just not um, what I would call Weiler's best work by any means. But, and it's neither, it's none of these actors' best work, but I, I've maybe keyed in on, you know, I, I think I really want to go down the Peter O'Toole, like, slide mm. and just see what the hell is going on here. Yeah, I, I would have to look at his filmography to see what else of his I've even seen, if anything. Um, Florence of Arabia, right? That I think mm-hmm. is his best, maybe biggest one, I, I, which I have not seen. I haven't seen it's another either. beast, right? That's another. Been putting three it off because it's a beast. Right? Yeah. Maybe we'll rescreen that in the next batch. That's usually a good way to to get to those long titles. Mm-hmm. And then we know that we have a month to to watch it. Yeah, because exactly. I probably won't rewatch that. One. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anything else? 
want to no, get on? No, I'm, I'm very interested in... I think I have a lot more to say about Children's Hour, so let's get there. All right. This is our lives you're playing with. That's very serious business for us. Can you understand that? I can understand that, and I can understand a great deal more. You've been playing with a lot of children's lives. That's why I had to stop you. I know how serious this is for you, how serious it is for all of us. I don't think you do know. You came here to find out if I made the charge. I made it. I don't want you in this house. All right, Michael. This is a film that stars Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, it has fascinating depth of field shots. It has, um, you know, maybe half a dozen of these double um, sided shots where the right frame will be a close up and the left frame, I think, is exclusively a depth shot. I don't think they ever swap and have a left close up right depth. Um it's very progressive for this point in time. It's a story about accepting people for who they are um, with sexuality, but it's also a story about how ugly rumors can be. Uh, what do you think of Children's Hour? I like this movie quite a bit. I did find this much more visually interesting than How to Steal a Million and also just plain more gripping. I was quite involved in this in this movie. I think there's some really interesting tension, and that has so much to do with how it is shot and just how people are arranged at different distances from the camera and, and blocked around each other. I think there's some really interesting shots here. Um, I like this a lot. What about you? I also like this mm -hmm. a lot. This is probably, just off the top of my head, my favorite Weiler, as far as I'm aware mm -hmm. of right now. Um I really, really like his um, his climax shadow work where, you know, he never shows the the death. What he does do is he shows the shadow and he shows the shadow in such a way that, you know, but you don't know to begin with. And then, you know, and, you know, with certainty at the end of that shot, it's kind of you see a rope. Then you see mm -hmm. Audrey Hepburn actually break in. And then you see the feet on the bed um, through shadow. And it's just this, yeah, there's there's a lot of shots that I like here. Particularly um, when there's a, a kind of in-between climax, we'll say, like the maybe third climax in the film, where there's an argument between the older woman who's made the accusations and Audrey Hepburn. And Audrey is in the entryway, you know, thrown down the depth field. And then in the right side of the frame is the older woman kind of coming to her for, um, you know, to have another conversation. And it's just this incredible tandem dramatic shot that I actually think was stitched together. Um, mm -hmm. At least in the print that I was watching, it looked like they had kind of cut down on like maybe five-eighths of the way to the right, so that they were seeming in Audrey's scene with a good take or good film, I don't know which, of the, the right side. There's there's mm -hmm. a lot here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so story-wise, um, Audrey Hepburn, Shirley MacLaine, they run a young girl's boarding school. Mm -hmm. It's going quite well for them. They've just turned profitable. 90 bucks! 
Yeah, that's make not, money. That's not no money back then. That's, One of them wants to go blow it right deal. away. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Hepburn is engaged to the to, to another man. Um, who, she's been putting off the wedding for a couple of years, waiting until the school uh, t- turns to the black. Um, and they have one particularly terrible young girl. Who, I think the word is shitty, Michael. Oh, she is ridiculously shitty. She's so shitty. Uh, this little girl who... Um, like, if she was in Willy Wonka, you'd be cheering for her to get murdered. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, she kind of re- reminds me of that girl. That's mm-hmm. a great comparison, actually. Uh, um, she seeks revenge on her two boarding school teachers, McLean and Hepburn, um, and uh, does so by telling a lie about him um, and telling her grandma that she has discovered that they are lesbians, which leads all the parents to freak out. Not just that they're lesbians, that they're committing sex acts on each other in the children's school that the girls can see. That's right. Which leads all the parents to withdraw their kids from the school and without shun these the two gr- women. Without Audrey or Shirley having any idea what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, we have these two big stars, but what, you know, what do you make of that little girl? She is. She is terrible. Very good at making me hate her. So talent, I Word. guess. Um, I really don't like her. Like I, I wish her nothing but pain and suffering. <laughs> Word. I agree. She is awful. Um, yeah, and I, I did. I, I think she is a good actress. I think there are times where she goes pretty hard for um, pretty big the, for for the villainy of of, of her character. Um, and sometimes I've wondered if, as much as I like this movie, if there, if there is something about her villainy that is overshadowing the fact that the real problem here is how people react to the lie and not the fact that she told the lie. If, you know, if there is some misplaced attention here, Mm. um, more of a thought than a criticism, but something that I've wondered. Yeah, I think that I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that either are more important than the other. I think that children lying nefariously and using lies to manipulate other children negatively mm-hmm. are you know that that's that's not only not something that you have to try to equalize but like it's just a separate moral axiom to engage with kind of um it's like should that's people fair. judge people on their sexuality no should children lie in such a way that they're destroying the lives of people and other children no i think those are like two separate but equal questions you know something like that that's fair i i can get on board with that argument my my response might be that she is a kid i mean i as much Mm -hmm. as i hate her absolutely hate her to the to her little core Mm -hmm. i i could say she is a child and you, um, you could just punch parent, her the, because she's a child. So. <laughs> yeah, the solution. <laughs> and the parents, as more developed people, should know better than to do what they do, which they absolutely do not. Mm-hmm. But I completely understand that. Maybe it's sort of a um, unfair comparison. So, yes. Um, so that. while I was watching it, I, um, I mean, I was mostly struck by like how unorthodox this is. Like I've mm-hmm. I've seen this type of story. Um, not particularly with the adult characters in a sexual relationship like this necessarily, but I've seen this type of uh, moral tale 
in a children's school where the parents send them away a lot. It it takes major precedence in uh, like Prussian and, and Anglo-Saxon German um, fiction in like the 19th century. Like Hermann Hesse wrote a fantastic book on it. Uh, there's The Confusions of Young Torlis, which is just a, a great work. And I've never really seen the similar type of story told from the fem- like all female perspective, where arguably the fiance is kind of like, um, you know, he's just there to be the fiance and the side character um, in the the social norm function. Everything else is very feminine driven, whether it's the little girl or her grandma or mm-hmm. the aunt that spreads the rumor or the, the two main girls. Like it's very feminine driven. And I think that's really, really original at this point in time, especially um, for that type of a, a moral tale fiction story. Yeah, for sure. He, um, he it's he feels like the third wheel, which is mm-hmm. so funny. Um, it's it's and he's French, great at it. He is. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it really um, great performance in that it doesn't um, risk upstaging up Hepburn or McLean. I don't think he even could if he tried. But um, yeah, the way he. I don't know. When Let's he spanked that girl, I was pretty cheery. Oh, yeah. That did surprise me, actually. That came out of nowhere. The walk away spank. <laughs> that was bold. <laughs> and you find out that that's like his niece or something or oh, cousin. Right? Yeah. So they're related because the, the grandma is related to him as well. Yeah, I actually yeah, they're forgot all about related. that detail. It's like a, a trio of relation. It's I, I think it's a actually pretty rich drama screenplay it is very you know kind of by the numbers especially in the first third um you know it's like mm. doing exactly what you would expect like an overtly dramatic play to do there's like exaggerations to emotions to a t uh you kind of look at audrey and you're like why are you forcing it like this hard a little bit mm. um with some of the outrage shots but in general i think that by the last act, a lot of goodwill's been earned, and when they go bigger in that last act, it it actually feels more deliverable. I would say her reaction to the death, though, Audrey's reaction to the death, you know, is a little bit too wide-eyed, just a little <laughs> bit too exaggerated. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, I think some of my favorite moments of acting are from Shirley MacLaine and there earlier on where she's just kind of planting those mm. hints that she might um, feel something romantic towards Hepburn. And that's like when she's they're washing glasses together and she's talking about seeing Hepburn for the first time on their college campus um, and remembering how beautiful she looked. And she's kind of just like, you know, kind of daydreaming almost in this very brief moment. Those are really nicely played. To kind of, um, you know, plant the question, how, how much does she feel towards her without going too too hard towards that yet? Yeah, and the, I mean, the subtext and the subtlety is, is there throughout the, the film, I think. You're constantly wondering, you know, do either of these girls have those feelings? And then in that scene you mentioned, you know, you start to wonder if Shirley does. There's other scenes where you wonder if Audrey does. And... Mm-hmm. And as a viewer, you're also wondering, is she lying now? Mm. Or like, even if she is lying, is it not true? Mm. Do you uh, do you think Hepburn has 
uh, feelings towards McLean's character? Or do you not feel that way? I don't think she does, but I think she could. Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of the point Mm -hmm. in that that kind of denouement there where um, she says, will you move with me to start again? Mm -hmm. Right. That's kind of for me, that's this. That's Audrey kind of admitting that she doesn't know and maybe she'll try. Mm -hmm. I like that. And either way, you know. If it's not necessarily sexual in nature, there's an emotional truth of love there that um, supersedes the sexuality desire. Yeah. Um, I've kind of gone back and forth, but I would be kind of tempted to go back and look at the scenes where she's talking. Hepburn is talking to her fiance about why they have put off the marriage and mm-hmm. and read those more closely to see just how much you believe her rationale for why she has delayed um and if there's any intimation there that it is because she's not sure that that's what she wants and there is um a more confused sense of desire in her rather than mclean um, that is part but, of the read that i had in my first viewing because i mean when, when we're watching it for the first time you don't know and i definitely in the beginning was more leaning towards it being hepburn but very well concealed mm. um because McLean's a little bit more, you know, emotions on her sleeves type of gal. Yeah, that is kind of funny how she seems like the much more transparent type when they go to the girl, little girl's grandma's house. And she's the one screaming and pissed off. Um, but she's actually the one with much more to hide, at mm-hmm. least. Or, or so it seems. Um, which is a nice kind of twist. I have to say, I did not. I did not know where this movie was going. I really did not think there was going to be a reveal like that. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I thought the film was going to be very different. I thought it was going to be like children suffering and these two, <laughs> like, you know, Catherine Hepburn, African Queen-esque, like, nuns mm. that, are, that are there to take care of the children and their innocence and save them. And some sort of a dramatic thing would happen. I did not think it would be this small town you know, kind of a, a cross-burning type of a, a vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there are only so many players here. You, I feel like you can kind of feel the stage origins of it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, not to go back too much on, to what, on what we've already talked about with the deep focus, I think it does feel very cinematic to me. And it's, and it's Uniquely images. so. Yeah. I, I mean, it's... Not just some of Weiler's best cinematography, but it's some of the most interesting cinematography from this period that I've seen because of the, it's literally just split down the line in the middle of of the screen. And on one half, you have deep focus around the center of the left half. You have the far deep focus and around the right half, you'll have the ear, which would be the closest part of the, the close up focus that isn't like the wall that's going toward the right of the screen. Um, so there's like this equilateral system almost at work um, in the frame that even when people do these tricks now with, uh, you know, I you just also saw um, Lux Eterna, which is a, mm. a film that does dual fields <laughs> um, in it. You know, as gorgeous and lovely as that film is, it's not doing this perfectly sequential, like, um, you know, ratio of far away and close up. At, at the same measurements. 
Yeah, one of the things I read about Weiler was that earlier in his career, he did some films with uh, the cinematographer Greg Tolan, who did Citizen Kane before, and he worked mm. with him before Citizen Kane, and it was starting to, to go ahead and experiment with deep focus um, cinematography before um, that yeah, really became actually explains some of the shadow work. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't think I don't think Greg Tolan shot this one, but I think. Um, uh, it's interesting to to know that he had been experimenting with that from uh, earlier in his career, and maybe didn't get the recognition for using it like um, you know something like Citizen Kane did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, there's also a, a few mirrors in this one that are just really greatly used. I think that more interesting than the mirrors, though, is the window exterior lighting um i don't know that it's mm. actually natural light they're using it could be an artificial light coming in through the window but it it they're using these windows to evoke the idea of naturalistic lighting to cast some harsh shadows and really decorate a scene like um the confrontation at the grandmother's house with mm. kind of a sense of, of brood that is visually cued in because of the long cast shadow. It's not mm. a, a short shadow that's, you know, two or three inches. It's like 14 feet long. It takes yeah. up like the whole <laughs> exterior of the back of the room is just cast in the shadow from like the piano or something. And you're, you're just given this visual sense of brooding and um, kind of a, a sense of reckoning that um, it, is interesting to put into a film passively. I think that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of directors that put in stuff overtly. And in general, I I find it kind of grating. There's certain ones that many people hate, but like Michael Bay, where his overt technical directions, I find so beautiful to look at that I don't care. But normally when, when it's, passively told i i'm just much more enveloped into the story because i can feel the tone build for me um and if i'm if i'm distracted i won't even notice why i feel that way the first time which i think happened Mm -hmm. to me here in a a score of shots yeah so when you say you mean when you say passive versus active you mean passive is where you there's no focus drawn to the fact that there's a shadow Mm -hmm. there just is a shadow Mm. And it's up to you whether or not you're focused on Audrey talking in the oh. grandma's reaction, or if you're looking at the back left corner where you see this incredible long cast shadow. That's what you mean. That's just, I think that's, that's, this is pure taste. I think I do prefer, or maybe am very drawn to active story or active direction in that sense where there is sort of a deliberate like distance in a way mm. between you and the film. Like they, like that's kind of, the Godardian style of direction, right? This kind of Brechtian distance between you and the text, which to me is very activating in your um, awareness that you're watching a movie. And it prompts me to think about what the director is doing, um, which is just different from the experience of being sort of um, involuntarily absorbed by it, um, which it sounds like is what you're saying when you say passive. Yeah, yeah. So just in general with stories, I like to not be told the story. I like to experience the story. And then um, if I can work up enough mental fortitude to observe additional things while I'm experiencing Mm. a good story, that's what I, you know, that's where I'm finding these passive 
pieces of detail. So it, it would be like when you were watching a Gaspar Noé film, are you experiencing everything as Brechtian? Or are, mm. are you experiencing any of the choices in the background as as what I'm dubbing personally, just because this mm. is how I learned it as passive storytelling. You're showing, you're not telling, you're not even drawing the focus there. It's something happening passively in the background. And if you notice, you notice, but you might talk to other people that had no idea. No way is actually one I would have described as a very uh, Godardian kind of director. Mm-hmm. He has those title cards that remind you you're watching a film. I don't know that mm-hmm. those do absorb me um, like uh, a How to Steal a Millionaire does. Those are very much um, films that draw attention to themselves. I, I would very much put Climax in there with uh, mm-hmm. you know, those the quotes we get. Um, yes, in the so for, for me, I experientially so this is very subjective but like the the thing with noe is he tells me that and then i forget three minutes later because i'm so absorbed and that's that's the dance of like you you know slapping the ace down on the table and then essentially saying i have three more in my hand do you dare me to lay the other ones down Mm -hmm. and then you forget that he has the three other aces in his hand and that there's an ace on the table and you're so absorbed in playing the game that you forget you already lost. Yeah. Fair. Fair. I mean, I mean, I think if we weren't absorbed by any given movie to some extent, we wouldn't watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there are degrees of, of distance for sure. How'd you get me talking about No Way? You, you planned that, didn't you? You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, back to children's hour. Um, Moving on to climax, <laughs> or that. Um, uh, a- a- any any other uh, thoughts? Um, do you think that the? I, I guess full disclosure. Let's just get into the act of suicide. Do you think the suicide was at all indicated previously to the action? Because um, even when there's the reaction and. I, I think maybe one of the weakest moments of the movie, which is the, uh, God, like the quadruple cut run close up of Audrey Hepburn mm-hmm. at the same spot in the forest over and over and over. Um, I, I think that at that point in time, there's not really a clear feeling of suicide, but there's an implied reaction to suicide. So it tells the viewer there is death, but it doesn't actually really deliver in making me feel like that's going to happen. Yeah. I, I'm not crazy about the editing you're, that you're describing. Um, I kind of hated it. I kind of hated it, too. It felt a little clunky, but whatever. That's fine. The It did just strike me as ambiguous when she starts running backwards. There was, like, within that 20 seconds or something like that, I was going back and forth between... Is there something ominous about this? Does she sense that something bad happened? Or is she running back because she thinks she suddenly realized she might want this? Mm. Um, I actually thought that was very well played. It's partly the music, too, where I was like, I actually can't tell if this music is telling me something bad happened or not. Um, which kind of, kind of goes for the same for the very final shot, too, which I actually don't think works as well for me. Um, so... To answer your question, I wasn't quite sure what was coming, to be honest, if this, if it was suicide or what. So this would be that, you know, maybe we just disagree because we're experiencing differently. But, you know, whether it's Brechtian or whether it's passive, she goes for a walk. She's leaning mm-hmm. against a tree. Left frame, tree. Right frame, far back, 
Shirley McLean's window. Mm -hmm. So she's going through this like sullen, dour, visual face thing. And the camera is specifically alighting on the lighting specifically for that window of Shirley McLean that we've seen her look out before at the fiance. And now it's kind of reversed where Audrey's outside and Shirley's in there. And for me, that was like just this visual passive feeling of like, oh, okay, it's death. The death mm. finally came. You know, I was waiting for the shotgun in the mouth at some point And, you know, how did she commit suicide? And then we see with the shadow work. But I think that that visual of Audrey walking away and then the juxtaposition of that window, it just kind of tells the viewer death. Yeah, I mean, it, it might just be the fact that, like, I didn't even get my head around the fact that this movie had it in it to go that far. Like, it's really fast from the pure, from the moment that McLean reveals she might she has feelings for Hepburn and it's just rapid kind of little um uh downfall she has this little kind of emotional collapse um I I didn't know that I just didn't know that it would reach those depths but it sure did I mean there's um there's a few ominous moments in the film that, that precursor this uh, particularly when they decide that they're going to go for a walk outside. And as soon as they walk outside, there is a truck with four men in it. And they're all, mm. you know, um, looking at them with uh, what you could say is malintent or malcontent. Mm -hmm. um, you wonder if there's going to be a cross burned in their yard. You wonder if there's going to be rocks thrown through the windows in those moments. You don't mm -hmm. know if those boys are going to jump out of the truck and rape them. You really don't know what angle the story's going to take at this point because it's already a very progressive film for this point in time. And then another moment is when the grocery boy walks into the house and ogles them mm -hmm. in close up. Yeah. And they demand that he gets out, and he doesn't. He turns around and re-oggles them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there is this brooding sense of negativity of like you, you know, anything can happen to these girls and might. <clears throat> um, I think that thematically, maybe I might be off here. The intent of Shirley McLean committing suicide at that point in time was to kind of show that this is like the happiest that she could ever be indicating that Audrey Hepburn was never going to overtly fall in love with her um, because mm. Audrey's last lines are let's go restart together um, and maybe she's committing suicide then because that's the happiest she could ever be because it's an undefined relationship so maybe they would actually be together whereas if it actually turned out they probably wouldn't um, that's kind of the subtext that I was reading there she just does not see the the future she wants as a realistic uh or she knows it's not realistic and this is the closest to the dream that she's ever going to get yeah yeah um yeah i can't argue with that i th i think that that reads well enough to me um the, the 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 very final shot where again we're seeing audrey hepburn walk away from the funeral um does end with this um, kind of unexpected sense of uplift. I think she starts to kind of smile, right? And that she's walking away and mm -hmm. the, we kind of finally see the title card. Um, wasn't really sure if I responded well to that or not. I don't think I did. I don't know why something in me told me that that felt like a studio touch where this has been 
so dismal five minutes ago. Let's end on a hopeful note just because I haven't really been able to tap into um, a reason why Hepburn might be satisfied in this moment that I can really buy. What about you? Anything in, in particular? Uh, so I'd be doubling down on my previous claim of motif and thematic, which is she knows that Shirley never would have been happy because she never would have ended up with her in a sexual relationship. And so she knows that she's at peace now and not suffering. And there is some sort of a relief to be had at knowing that someone you love is no longer suffering. This is why when our, our loved ones are put into palliative care and really begin suffering, sometimes, you know, we let them choose to, you know, take their own lives through medical means so that they no longer suffer because they were just going to die in more pain anyways. So at some level, I, I kind of wonder if that is the uh, the point, you know, because when you're intimately close and connected with someone, sometimes you know that they're never going to be emotionally fulfilled by the thing that they want to fulfill them. I like it. I do. I don't know that I have anything else. You? Do you have a favorite scene? Do I have a favorite scene? I think when Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine and Hepburn's boyfriend go over to the grandmother's house and everything is kind of not unraveling because the little girl only doubles down on her lie, actually. I think that is the most tense moment of the movie. I think that's all staged so perfectly because they're all there in one room. Um, They're all arranged, you know, carefully um, relative to where the camera is. I think that's easily the most... Um, kind of formally interesting moment in the movie for me. What about you? I think it probably is too. That that setting place is particularly just a gold mine for sumptuous visuals. Um, my favorite scene is quite a long scene, and it's the first time that Joe's called in when the young girl has pretended to pass out, and <sighs> then Shirley MacLaine is in the other room, and she gets in the argument, and it the whole scene eventually ends when he spanks his his cousin or niece or whatever <laughs> but the yeah. the amount of gymnastics thematically that are set up in that single scene is so eloquent and interesting like there's there's three different things that happen right like joe arrives and establishes that she's faking it the girls mm-hmm. are listening at the door which sets up the bracelet and then um the kind of the entire denouement setup is that um, they overhear the aunt chastising Shirley for being strange. And, um, you know, everything is just set up so cleanly and neatly and passively that you don't realize what you just saw. Mm-hmm. And it ends in this, this kind of slapstick bit where he spanks his, uh, his cousin or niece or whatever on the way out. And you're, you're absolutely put off from the coming doom. I think this is a solid recommendation from drinking the movies for the children's hour i would agree all right till next time run go get to the chopper we have to go i'm coming with you that was brilliant you're the best and we love you that's another one in the can